You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. This is Michael Lichens, your editor with CatholicExchange.com. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Mr. Joseph Pierce, one of the few people I get to call boss. He and I work together at St. Austin Review, where he is the editor, the copy designer, and pretty much the, the voice behind St. Austin Review. Joseph is also an author, has written many books on Tolkien, Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and his latest book, Race with the Devil, is about his own conversion. And Joseph, Mr. Pierce, it is a pleasure to have you here today. Welcome. It's a joy, it's a joy to be here, Michael, but I must disagree with something you said already. Uh, oh. you, you, you never need to call me boss. The word we're looking for here is colleague and friend. <laughs> colleague and friend, yes, sir. And yes, uh, I do consider you to be both, Joseph, which is also the pleasure to have you here. But yeah, I do call you boss in some of the emails you don't read from me, so we'll keep it that way. <laughs> well, if you insist, but as far as I'm concerned, you're just one of the team. Ah, uh, thank you very much, Joseph. And uh, get our listeners started in getting to know you. Can you tell us a little bit about your latest book, Race with the Devil? Yeah, Race with the Devil is basically what might be called my spiritual autobiography, so it's not... um an entire life story is what you might call a focused life story that looks at my past uh, and my conversion, my progress towards religious belief from being a very uh, anti-Catholic, uh, racist, neo-Nazi to eventually uh, coming to terms uh, with various things and moving closer to uh, to uh, Catholicism and eventually uh, in 1989 being received into Holy Mother Church. Working with you at St. Austin Review, we sometimes get emails. I remember there was one in particular where someone was surprised that this was the same Joseph Pierce that they were afraid of. And I can't remember the name of the town <laughs> it took place in. And they were just shocked that you had converted. And then it was shocking for me to read that because I was like, wow, someone was afraid of Joseph Pierce once upon a time. That's weird. <laughs> well, I'm glad you found me a big, a big cuddly teddy bear rather than a skinhead. <laughs> didn't so, so I, I think moving... Change you from being a, uh, a thuggy skinhead to a cuddly teddy bear is a move in the right direction, Michael. I agree. I agree. And I guess I can, if I use my imagination, I can imagine a day when you were frightening. But it's hard for, I think, most people <laughs> who've met you in person to see that. But Well, that's good. That's good to know. You said you were a skinhead for a number of years. Did that involve any political activism while you were doing that? Oh, absolutely. In fact, it was the other way around. I became a political activist first and became a skinhead. but got involved with the skinhead movement as part of that political activism. When I was 15 years old, I joined an organization called the National Front, which was a white supremacist organization back in England, which is where I'm from. Um, and I rose through the ranks of the uh, National Front, particularly its youth movement, the Young National Front, to become the Young National Front's chairman and the youngest member of the National Front's governing body and the editor of its magazine, Bulldog, all by the time I was about 17 years old, I think. Oh, my. I joined when I was 15, so I got involved okay. with young. So in this case, politics really is dangerous, and we should be aware of that. I got it. Yes, indeed. Politics is a messy business at the best of times, but I managed to pick a particularly messy part of it. So from an early age, even while you were involved with your, the National Front and those organizations, you were already pursuing writing and editing, it sounds like. Yes, I mean, I can't really, quite frankly, think of a time when I, I, I wasn't writing. I, I made the uh, the uh, finals of a national poetry competition organized by a national newspaper when I was about nine years old. I remember at school sort of pretending I was a newspaper editor, sort of doing a school project and imagining the contents of a newspaper. And I, I just did something 
no, I, 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 I wrote, I at least made an effort at starting my novels when I was a kid. I mean, you know, sort of 11. Um, so, uh, it's always been a part of, uh, of what I've done. Um, I, I can't really quite frankly think of a time when I just, when I wasn't writing. Yes. And I know that feeling very well, though I never joined. Uh, the worst I ever got was libertarian, which has its own problems, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> it has its own problems, but they're, but they're still cuddlier than neo-Nazis. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> they have their problems, but I can't say I was ever a skinhead. I was just I, yeah, a libertarian. I, 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 I'd rather go to the pub with a libertarian than a neo-Nazi anyway. Uh, most of us agree with that, absolutely. <laughs> and I know you published on Catholic Exchange and shared with our readers, which many of them were very delighted here. You had spent some time in jail that was kind of your like St. Paul or many other great saints, it was kind of your first movement towards conversion. Is that right? Yes. Well, yes and no, in the sense that I went to prison twice. And during the first prison sentence, I was such a fanatic uh, in my uh, white supremacist views and my neo-Nazi views that uh, I considered myself to be a political prisoner and a political soldier. And I just got myself in shape using my uh, prison cell as a, a gym to get myself back in shape. So when I came out, I could be a, a more, more radical than I was when I went in. But it was the second prison sentence where, uh, which, where I had the, if you like, the, uh, the, uh, the conversion experience and, uh, and, and uh, a great desire to be received into the church so that when I got out of prison, I really wanted nothing more than to escape from my past and the world in which I'd lived since I was 15 years old and start a new life, new life with Christ and his church. Oh, that second time of prison, when you got out and, you know, you wanted this new life, was there any books, any preaching, anything that really struck you to say i want to go to catholicism yeah well the, the process actually went went over a long period of time before the first prison sentence so i, I that's the whole point that was why the second prison sentence uh, was a much different experience for me because by the time i went to prison the second time i uh had uh severe doubts about the the politics for, for which i had been imprisoned uh i didn't know if i believed that anymore and the reason for that was i'd been i'd, I'd become very uh in, uh, involved in reading a new new type of book, basically by Catholic authors, the first and foremost, and the, and the writer to whom, under grace, I owe more than than anything is G.K. Chesterton. It was mm. discovering the works of G.K. Chesterton that that, that um, if you like, uh, uh, led in me to an appetite for the good, the true, and the beautiful. And uh, I basically fell in love with Chesterton as a person. I fell in love with his wit, his wisdom, his writing style, his personality, his sense of humour. And I just wanted to be with him as much as possible. And of course, as he's dead, uh, the way to be with him as much as possible is to get as many of his books as possible and to read them as often as possible. And that's basically what I did. And then through, uh, through, through coming to know Chesterton, I, I came to know people that, that, that knew Chesterton in one way or the other, such as Hilaire Belloc and, uh, C.S. Lewis. And so, uh, you know, uh, bit by bit, I was reading a much healthier fair than I than I had been reading prior to that as a, as a, as a racist. And Chesterton has converted many people. We had Dale Alquist earlier on the podcast uh, earlier this month. He keeps a running list. I know you're on it, and so am I, of people Chesterton's converted. And not just converted in terms of Christianity, but converted our very thoughts. I Like you, I think he turned me away from a lot of views that I, previous, I now look at and go, oh my gosh, I believe that? Yeah. And that was yeah. his magic, is that ability to really make you rethink your whole world view yeah there are many 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 people that are in the same position as you and i and dale um and, and you know chesterton actually does sort of a teachers to, to to think so to speak and i i'm reminded of the words of the great Ronald knox another another formidable convert who owes mm -hmm. his 
conversion in large part to Chesterton. And he said that uh, uh, Chesterton's paradoxes became the platitudes of my thought. Um, mm. And I think that really sums up the, the impact that Chesterton has on those that, that come to Christ through, through their love of him, uh, that, that he teaches us to think, he teaches us that, that you know, that the, the, the paradoxes, uh, really shows that the, the apparent contradictions of life are, re- are really pointing to deeper truths. And, and that, and that way of approaching reality, I think, is, 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 is liberating and revolutionary in the best sense of the word. It turns us on our heads and forces us to see things from a new and ultimately correct angle because, uh, in fact, and, and we didn't know it, we were actually standing on our heads prior to that. And it's chest and the goddess to stand the right way up. And it looked as if things were upside down until we realized that actually we had been upside down and now things are the right way up because we are. Perfectly summed up with Chesterton. Uh, was there a particular work of Chesterton's that you remember while you were on your path towards Catholicism? Well, the one that, that always uh, springs to mind because it was the first is a book called The Well and the Shallows. And that's unusual in some respects because most people, when they talk about Chesterton's impact upon them, talk about works work such as Orthodoxy or, or The Everlasting Man. But uh, The Well and the Shallows was the first book by Chesterton I read. Um, and so that's the one I think that set me on the path. So that's the one I, if you like, I, I look at, look upon with a particular fondness. And that is a fantastic book. I think Ignatius Press brought that back into print a few years ago. And that's the yeah, first was, time was, I read it. One of his last books, I think it was published in 1935. So one of his last books is a book of essays. And most of them are looking at various attacks upon the Catholic Church. Um, uh, the title, The Well and the Shallows, uh, says it all. The well is the Catholic Church, uh, has debt has life-saving, life-giving uh, waters, uh, and the shallows is everything else. And while you were reading Chesterton, you were coming to the Catholic Church. I note, uh, and a lot of our readers will be intrigued by this, you had also read quite a bit of C.S. Lewis and eventually even wrote a book about C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, if I remember correctly. Yes, indeed. In fact, there's a Chesterton story about my first coming across C.S. Lewis that I uh, I'd quite like to recount uh, now, if I may. Please. Uh, I was looking through a second-hand bookshop or used bookstore, to use the American language, um, uh, in England back a long time ago, probably in the well, in the 1980s. And uh, my eyes fell upon a book called um, Surprised by Joy by a writer called C.S. Lewis. And I'd heard of Lewis, but only very vaguely. I think that I'd heard of uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, but beyond that, I think I knew nothing. I don't think I even knew that he was Christian. But something anyway uh, prompted me to take the book from the shelf and, uh, and and to take a look at it. And I opened the book at random. Uh, there's no index. so I couldn't have looked at the word Chester in the index. There's no index in, in, in that book. So I opened the book at random and came upon the magic word Chesterton. And uh, in it, Lewis, who was an atheist when he first read Chesterton, t- talked about how Chesterton had such an impact upon him, even though he wasn't a Christian. And of course, I wasn't a Christian at the time. So that really um, struck uh, home, struck a chord with me, because here we have this non-believer, this non-Christian, this anti-Christian, he was an atheist, who nonetheless couldn't help liking Chesterton. Here am I, a neo-Nazi racist who who also hates Catholicism, that can't help liking Chesterton. So I thought, oh, this C.S. Lewis person's good. So I bought the book, not knowing, of course, that that's his own conversion story. So I read that and uh, couldn't help liking it and then started buying books by, by Lewis. And in that book, actually, Lewis says of his first encounter with Chesterton that a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. 
Um, and that's a perfect example. You know, you 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 start opening books. Uh, you, if you are if you're ignorant and you're a bigot, you're in trouble. And yes, that goes for just about every one of us who starts reading. Uh, it's dangerous work to go into a secondhand bookshop and pick up Chesterton. That's exactly how my conversion started as well. So yeah, warning to anyone who's trying not to convert: don't do that. They're but like, they're please like, do. They're like, they're like <laughs> each book's like a little truth bomb ready to explode in your mind and bring you to reality. <laughs> Again, a perfect analogy. And while you, after you converted, you said it was in 1988, is that right? Uh, 89. St. George's Day, Day, 1989 was when I was received at the church. Oh, wow. And so after 1989, you find a... Sorry, facts are important here, Michael. It was St. Joseph's Day, 1989, I was received at the church. Ah, St. Joseph's Day. Okay, perfect. There was a Freudian slip by the Englishman there, St. George's Day. (laughs) <laughs> uh, i could see that but hey he's still a saint in our church so whatever absolutely um, and while you were converting it when you were leaving your old life behind did you find it all a lot of difficulties to leave behind friends influences and things like that oh yes very much so you have to remember that i joined the national front when i was 15 and i basically broke away after that second prison sentence i think by the time i actually made the break and moved to a different part of england it was 1988 so i'd been 27 so, you know, for the period of 12 years, basically, I'd known nobody except people involved in this organization eventually. So you're, you're, you're basically, and of course, in that organization, I was a hero and a martyr. I'd been to prison twice. So in that in that small pond, if you like, I, I was a big and, and greatly admired fish. And outside that small pond in the big wide sea, I was I was loathed and reviled. My, my, my court cases and prison sentences made front page headlines. So there was a, it was, it was a major change to actually jump out of the, uh, the small pond in which I was liked into the great sea in which I wasn't and, and, and try and try to make a new life for myself. So yes, it was, uh, uh, it was, it was uh, a revolutionary change in my life. Certainly. Certainly. And now uh, most people see you. I mean, I know many young people call you professor or Mr. Pearson. What caused that change to go from an ex skinhead, new Catholic to wanting to teach college courses and to write books for a living? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm not, I don't know. I, I ever, ever consciously wanted to teach college courses, and I tell my students that I'm not Doctor Pierce. I'm playing Mister Pierce. Don't, yes. don't give me airs and graces that I don't deserve. Um, but certainly, writing books is something that just came natural to me. So I wanted to, uh, to if you like, as an act of gratitude, what, uh, uh, my first book as a Catholic, uh, at least my first book published as a Catholic, was um, was uh, a life of G.K. Chesterton. And that I always say was an act of uh, thanksgiving, uh, an act of thanksgiving to God uh, for giving me Chesterton, but also an act of thanksgiving to Chesterton for giving me God. Um, so that that's how it began. Of course, that that was published by um, a major secular publisher in the UK, uh, Hodder and Stoughton. And so, with, on, on on the strength of that advance payment for that for that book, I took the plunge and gave up the day job and became a full time writer. And uh, then I had to write two books a year, otherwise I'd be homeless. So that's a good that's a good uh, incentive to keep writing. <laughs> yes, it was that a book. Was that published in America as Wisdom and Innocence? Am I thinking of the right one? It, it, you are thinking of the right one. It's published in the UK and and uh, in 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 the US as Wisdom and Innocence: A Life of G.K. Chesterton's full title. Yeah. Oh yes, and it's sitting on my desk from the last time I had to write an article on Chesterton, so it's always been staring at me, and it's been read through many times. Any of you listeners who haven't picked up and want to start with Chesterton, that's a great biography, and I can't recommend it enough. Well, thank you, Michael. I mean, again, oh. the title itself, I think, sums up something of the paradox, who is Chesterton, you know, the, the wisdom and innocence, because he shows how the two, which the world and its secularism and its worldliness 
thinks are contradictory. He can't be both wise and innocent. Um, uh, Chesson actually shows that on the contrary, in order to be wise, you have to be innocent. In order to be innocent, you have to be wise. And of course, he encapsulates that in the character and persona of, of uh, Father Brown, his priest detective character. But he also very much epitomized it in his own personality and life. Yes, and I, you see, you do shine a light in that without his life. Uh, I'm sorry, throughout his life, especially in how he had his relationship with uh, Francis. And there's an upcoming book on Francis Chesterton, which I'm looking forward to. And also his friendships with so many various people. Uh, was there a moment when you were researching this book, is there a particular moment that you really thought summed up his wisdom and innocence? Wow, that's a good question. I like it when people ask me difficult questions, Michael. It makes me think. Thinking is good. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I think that by the time I... Yeah, that's... that's, that's, um, that's... <laughs> That's actually a very good question. I'm not really sure that uh, that I that I that I can answer it. I think one thing about Chesterton, uh, his life for the most part is what astonishes one is uh, how together he is, how much of a muchness it is, how, if you like, the so-called pre-convert. You know, the, so we, when did Chesterton become a Christian? I mean, you, you spot the line really because you know he. It, from 1900 onwards, when he's probably he's not informally perhaps, well certainly 1890, he's not informally a Christian. He's certainly moving in in the direction of the wisdom and innocence, which encapsulates his personality. When he meet, after he meets Francis, of course, and he embraces Anglican Christianity. Um, you know, he's he's a very Catholic Anglican, and certainly by 1908, which is still 12 years before, it's actually still 13 years before his conversion. When he publishes Orthodoxy, I mean that's a, that's a profoundly Catholic work. So and then, of course, he formalizes his relationship with the Church somewhat uh, belatedly, if you like, following World War One with his conversion. 1921, I think, his conversion was it not? Um, yes, it was. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but yeah, you know, but he, I, I defy anybody to say, okay, well, this is the Catholic, the Catholic Chesterton begins in 1921. No, no, the Catholic Chesterton, you know, begins. Well, you told me. That's the whole point. I mean, the, those very early books, The Defendant, and those early books of essays, um, mm -hmm. uh, Heretics, so that, you know, all those early books that uh, uh, long before orthodoxy even are so, so profoundly Catholic in their wisdom and innocence that uh, they, they, you can't, you can't find, you can't see the join. And that, that's one of the things about Chesney. He's uh, such a holistic uh, individual, you know. Um, and uh, where holism and holiness meet, if you like. Yes, and uh, you certainly see that throughout his works, especially uh, you bring up a great point about where does the Catholic Chesterton start. It's like, uh, that's a great question, and I don't know if I have an answer. It, yeah. There's so but much that, of the... That was why your question confused me, because I mean, yeah, you talk about what moment in Chesterton's life. Well, you know, the thing about it, it seems to be a seamless whole. I mean, we, we talk about you know, we talk about his mawkish youth. Oh, okay, so he went through an adolescent idiocy like the rest of us. But but basically, by the time he was <laughs> 20 or so, he's getting himself together. And, uh, uh, you know, even that um, unpublished novel that, that was, wasn't was published until, uh, I think, not until the, uh, was it the 1990s or even the early part of this, this millennium? Uh, was it was it called now? Um, oh, can you remember the, the, the unpublished novel? Oh, I don't recall the unpublished novel, unfortunately. Anyway, the funny, it was a work of naivete. It wasn't. It wasn't great. Uh, it wasn't great literature. But you have this. Uh, you know, he he's clearly influenced, not necessarily in a very healthy way, by Oscar Wilde in in trying to be clever and having his worldly character be a bit like um, Lord Henry Wotton. But the point is, the, the the desire there, the subplot is 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 the Chesterton we know and love. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the desire for wisdom, the denial, desire for innocence, the desire for God. The desire for holiness—it's all—it's all in that—all uh, in that book. 
Ah, uh, yes, and I, I remember hearing about that book. I never got a chance to read it. I remember Tr Stratford Caldecott lecturing on it, and I cannot, for the life of me, yeah, remember the name of the take, It's going to irritate me immensely, and unfortunately, if I was at home, I'd go and get it. Um, yes. <laughs> But I'm actually at Aquinas College in Nashville where I'm teaching this week. So I, I don't have my library with me. So there's not much I can do to check on it at the moment. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Was it something like Basil Howe? Yes. Well, oh, well there's my memory. Yes. Yes, Basil Howe, well done. And you're at Aquinas College. Let's talk about that for a second. You're at Aquinas College currently teaching. What's your uh, position at Aquinas? Well, I'm a writing residence and director of the Center for Faith and Culture. And in the latter uh role as director of Center of Faith and Culture within lots of exciting things here. Um, we, ha we have an annual Shakespeare Christianity celebration. We're going to have an annual Tolkien and Lewis celebration. Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's very exciting. I'm just finishing my first academic year down here. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I came here with high hopes and aspirations, and they've been more than more than fulfilled. You are showing the students the joys of Tolkien as well, one of the other great pillars of your works and also of many conversions in America and England. Indeed, I'm teaching a special topics course in the next semester, in the fall semester, just on Tolkien alone, which I'm looking forward to very much. Oh, great. And on Tolkien, uh, I, especially after Peter Jackson's films, good or bad, especially after them, a lot of people are eager to learn about Tolkien. Do you find most people are surprised to learn about just how Catholic Tolkien was? Well, not uh, certainly not uh, not young Catholics. I think the, word, the, the words really got out uh, in the Catholic world about Tolkien's Catholicism and uh, I think one of the reasons that the Lord of the Rings is so immensely popular amongst Catholic uh, uh, young men and women, uh, teenagers, even children, uh, is because they're aware that uh, not only is he a great storyteller, he's a he's a safe storyteller in the sense that he's one of us. Um, of course, he's only safe in one sense because uh, the Lord of the Rings, if you like, presents to us a, a mirror of ourselves, and but not just a, a material mirror, but a magic mirror, because in looking in that mirror the picture of ourselves we see is dangerous because it can change. In other words, we see ourselves and uh, we see perhaps how dark and inadequate we are and what we need and what we should be. I think what Tolkien shows us is, you know, uh, the difference between good and evil, but who, we, who we're called to be, who we should be, and the quest for life is the quest that all of us are called to follow. So uh, it's, a, it's a magic mirror, it's a dangerous mirror, but certainly it's a mirror that Catholics can feel, can feel comfortable with because we know that the mirror that's being shown to us is a mirror of truth. Uh, this is a question I'm almost afraid to ask regarding Tolkien. How was that mirror held up in Peter Jackson's films, if you don't mind going into that? Well, if, if, if I could start with the, the Hobbit movies, I think, were, were, were horrible. And in fact, I, I, yes. I, I saw the first one and, and thought it was really bad. And then when people told me the second was worse, I thought, well, I don't even need to see it. So I must confess, I haven't even seen the second or third. And You're okay. Don't worry. Don't worry. I have intention to do so because everyone... Everyone says they're so they're so bad. The first was the best of the three. Well, that's all I need to know. But I would say with the Lord of the Rings movies, I think that uh, the, the difference was that that uh, Jackson, I think, with those movies, because he had so many millions of dollars invested in the project, he he went to great pains to get the Tolkien lovers around the world on his side, and very very wisely and prudently, because once you've got several million people enthusiastic about the project, you've got your own unpaid sales force. So he did mm. he did everything he could, you know down to sort of uh, male shirts that were, you know, that were as realistic to descriptions in Lord of the Rings and the Silver Rings as you could get. Uh, so this this love for, for the books shone forth. So although he took liberties in the Lord of the Rings movies with Tolkien's text, and some of which, in fact, most of which I'm not pleased with, uh, you know, I think for the most part, I, I, I like the Lord of the Rings movies and I'm quite happy. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm, I'm due to watch them again. It's been some time. 
So uh, when I get some time, I'm going to sit down and watch them again. So yeah, I, I get a, I get a, I, get, I give a tentative thumbs up to the Lord of the Rings movies and an emphatic thumbs down for The Hobbit. Okay, good to know. And uh, going back to Tolkien's great books, uh, is there a particular moment or a scene within the Lord of the Rings trilogy or any of Tolkien's works really where you can point out to people and show? Just how subtly and how brilliantly he brings about Catholic truths. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are numerous examples of that. Of course. Hiding the Wet Star, but I'll give you one example because it's a real favourite of mine and, and not, 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 a, not an episode that most people uh, uh, know or bring to mind readily. It's, the, it's at the crossroads in The Lord of the Rings where uh, Sam and Frodo uh, at the crossroads on their way to, to, to Mordor uh, stumble across uh, a statue of a king. And the king, uh, the king's, uh, uh been, uh, vandalized by orcs and their head's been decapitated and they've stuck a rough hewn stone dwarfed with the eye of Sauron and foul uh, orcish graffiti all over the statue. And it seemed to be a symbol of the triumph of evil over good. If you like that the, uh, the statue symbolizing civilization and the, the relationship between, uh, creator and creation and creativity, you know, taking the, Taking the marble or the stone, and then with with human art, turning it to something beautiful, uh, uh, if you like, as an edifice raised in glory to 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 the creator. So the whole thing is a symbol of that hierarchy of created value between creator, creation, and sub-creation, uh, which is so important to Tolkien. That sort of that, that um, trinity of creativity. So it it, it was a symbol mm. of creative uh, of civilization that had been destroyed, um, and so this is a symbol of the power of darkness triumphant. And yet they notice uh, the head of the, the original head of the statue has been rolled away. And there's a light of the sun, a shaft of sunlight comes through the trees, illuminating their head like a, like a halo. And then they notice there's their stone crop, sort of uh, little yellow flowers growing in the hair of the king and a trailing plant of white, white flowers around itself around the head of the king. And uh, Frodo says, see, Sam, the king has a crown again. They cannot conquer forever. And I love that because it really shows how wow. the, you know, the sun itself, the light of the sun itself is being like the finger of God that we see in the, on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, you know, and the finger of God touching and pointing to the fact that, that there's always going to be light, uh, as Sam, Sam says a little bit later in the story, above all shadows rides the sun. And I did miss that the last time I read it. I need to read it again. Wow. Indeed. <laughs> What a great, I say that all the time, though, so yes, I should read those again very soon. To talk about more of what you do within the, for the church and for all Catholics and Christians throughout the world, it's really hard to sum up how much work you do, but you let's talk uh, finally in our interview about St. Austin Review, which is the AA journal you and I both get to work on as a labor of love. Can you tell us a little bit about the mission of St. Austin Review? Yes, I mean, for me, it is, uh, I'm reminded, uh, of the words of, uh, of, uh, Henry V, uh, or Shakespeare's Henry V, you know, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. And really, uh, for me, this Austin Review is, is a real labor of love. It's a passion. And I've, I've been editor of the magazine since it was founded in 20, in, in 2001, in September 2001, a sort of a good, um, if you like, an ominous, uh, portentous month in which to start a magazine. That was, of course, the month of uh, 9 11. So September mm -hmm. uh, 2001 was the first issue of St. Austin Review. I've, I've been editor since that day. And over the years, you know, we've had, we've had a team of people that, that, that are paid purely with love because <laughs> we don't have the money <laughs> to pay any, anything, anything else. You are, of course, part of that, that band of brothers of which I'm speaking. 
And it's nice in review is uh, um, uh, a Catholic cultural journal comes out six times a year and it has a different theme for each issue. The, the, the new issue is on France and the faith. Uh, the previous one was on mm-hmm. stormtroopers and secularism on the Nazis. We have issues coming up soon on, the, on, on Tolkien and on Shakespeare and on history. Uh, as if truth mattered, we'll be having articles on the Crusades and on the Spanish Inquisition and, and such like. So, uh, um, and you've got the issue on Hilaire Belloc and Evelyn War all coming up in the pipeline. But, you know, uh, it, I can't express enough how passionately I'm in love with this magazine. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's it, I squeeze it in to, to my busy working life for no for no payment as as you do and uh, and as yes. people involved with the magazine do and uh, and we're rewarded I think because I think I, I really do think there's nothing out there like it and I really do think that it's about the best Catholic magazine there is out there quite frankly and no disagreements from me I mean that's we all love the magazine and there is nothing like that out there fighting the good fight to preserve our culture and also enrich it with poetry with art and with beautiful writing. It is the best Catholic magazine out there. Thanks, Nothing against Catholic Exchange, but yes, it is the best. <laughs> well, you have to say that. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank, thank you, Michael, for echoing my sentiments there. And, I, and as we can't afford the budget for writing, I hope you will uh, put the link up or somewhere on, on Catholic Exchange for it uh, with connected to this interview. Obviously, it's an AustinReview.com. Um, yes, definitely. it will be available in our show notes, which we publish along with this interview. So all of you who want to visit and look at subscribing by digitally or by print, you can absolutely do so. And it will be a very fine addition to your library. Thank you. Mike. And on. Oh, it's my pleasure, Joseph. And on that note, we are finished with this interview, Joseph. It was wonderful to be able to sit down with you for a good half hour to learn more about your past, learn more about your books, and to share you with our readers. Thank you so much for coming on here and blessing us all. My pleasure, Michael, and I'm up in New Hampshire soon, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting together with you for, uh, for an ale or two. Yeah, I will look forward to it. And to all you listeners, God bless you all. God love you. Have a wonderful week.